This is HEC Media. Welcome to Talking with Authors, a program dedicated to speaking with some of the best-selling authors around, covering many different genres. I'm your podcast host, Rod Milam, for HEC Media. With the help of independent bookstore Left Bank Books and the St. Louis County Library, we're able to sit down with amazing writers and thought leaders to discuss their work, their inspiration, and what makes them special. By the way, you can also watch video versions of most of these interviews by going to hecmedia.org. Now, after the initial weeks of the coronavirus global shutdown, we were able to set up remote interviews with many authors. Now, sound quality might be slightly different than our previous podcasts, but they still contain the same great content that you've come to expect. Today, our guest is screenwriter and Booker Prize winning author Roddy Doyle. We spoke with him via Zoom in June of 2020 about his newest book, Love, a novel, by publisher Penguin Random House. Roddy Doyle has placed the setting of many of his 11 novels for adults in and around his home stomping grounds of Dublin. Love, a novel, continues in that vein. This tale centers around a pub crawl of two 50-year-old drinking buddies of decades. They find that on this night out, they try to talk a bit more deeply than they ever have with hopes of continuing their kinship on a more mature level. The subject of love comes up, and they talk about a woman that they knew long ago in their younger days of carousing. Roddy wrote this conversation with some intentional ambiguity. Yeah, it's very deliberate. But very deliberately, I, I kind of thought when I was writing, is there a possibility that this woman doesn't exist at all? That she's somehow a fantasy? That was one of the things about her when uh, she was a young woman, that they didn't grasp her then either. And I don't mean in a coarse way, but they never got close to her, so to speak. And from their talk about their past object of desire, the book hits on the subject of different kinds of love, including love between childhood friends. We'll hear more about the winding path the book takes and about the recent screenplay work of award-winning writer Roddy Doyle on this edition of Talking With Authors from HEC Media and HEC Books. Here's our host and interviewer this time, Brenda Madden. Roddy Doyle, thanks for joining us. Thank you. And you're joining us from Dublin. Uh, a place called Clontarf, which is about a mile and a half from Dublin city centre. Um, so it is a suburb, but kind of a Victorian inner suburb, really. Yeah. Um, and right, you know, the sea is down at the end of my road, or Dublin Bay is down at the end of my road. So I've been the best of both worlds in many ways. If I walk for a quarter of an hour to the left, I come to a bird sanctuary called Bull Island. And if you look in that direction, the notion that there's a large European city right behind you is unimaginable. Where, and if I turn around, I see the docks, you know, yeah. and Dublin. So in a way, it's a, in some ways, it's, it, 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 you know, assuming you like Dublin, which I do, it's the perfect place to live. So, and yeah. it's just as well, because I've been stuck here for months. <laughs> right. <laughs> Haven't had a choice, yeah. Um, so yeah. So speaking of which, uh, strange time to be launching a book, I guess, huh? Yeah, it's it is. Um, it's a strange trying to make an event out of a non-event in many ways. You know, they, uh, it, it was supposed to be published here in Ireland and in the UK last month in May, but that was put back until October. Quite rightly, quite wisely, but it was still a bit of a disappointment in some ways. But so the fact that it's coming out in solid paper form in the United States and Canada, it's great. It's great. But I, I was due to be over there. Um, and obviously that's out of the question. So, but it is a strange time. I had um, three theatrical productions all lined up this year. 
uh, tours of old work and then a brand new play at the end of the year, but they're all either cancelled or postponed. So the, the, the year and the working year and what I was writing about was entirely just disappeared, obliterated. I was writing a novel, I was just started it set in the present day and I realised I don't actually know what that means. Because if we, if we contrast how we probably felt personally in mid-March when the lockdown started, as opposed to today, there's no comparison really, you know. So I put that novel aside and I've been working on short stories because I think those moments will capture the time a bit better. So I'm not doing what I anticipated I would be doing, but I am busy. Yeah, so your, your new novel, Love, and it's funny because who would have thought that a novel set in a pub would suddenly be like a uh, dystopian? <laughs> <laughs> Who yeah, thought that would be a radical idea? In this? An archaeological <laughs> dig, almost, you know? What's up? <laughs> yeah, so tell us about the story then, right? It seemed very plausible at the time it was written that this would happen, but <laughs> as we said, yeah, things have changed. Hopefully it will be plausible. Set the yeah. Scene for, yeah, set the scene for us now. We've yeah. Joe and Davey, two, two old kind of friends. Teenage, right? Old, you could say childhood friends, but right, from kind of their running yeah, around. Years years, years. And particularly there was a couple of years in their early 20s when they began to have a bit of money in their pockets. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of them went to college, which would have been, given where he came from and the time, it would have been not rare exactly, but it would have been a, a big decision for him to go to college where most of the school friends would have gone on to work immediately after finishing high school. Right. But they kept solidly together, and then for a few years, they discovered Dublin, you know, the pubs of Dublin and that world. And then, you know, they went their separate ways. And literally, in the case of the narrator, Davy, he emigrated, as an awful lot of Irish people did and do, to the UK. So he's, he's been living over there now most of his adult life, and his children are effectively English. His wife is Irish. And he comes over a few times a year to see his father, who's still alive. And he meets up with this other man, Joe. And over the years, they become, I suppose, not, un- not unfriendly, but distant. And like a lot of men, I think, of my generation, when we meet, we'd ask, how are the kids? And you, you know, they say, oh, this one's doing that, and that one's doing this. But we're not fundamentally interested in each other's children at all. We, don't, we promptly <laughs> forget their names, and you move on to the other stuff. And so these two men, they, they don't have much in common anymore. But this particular night, and they've stopped meeting in pubs, they meet for something to eat. It's all very civilized. So they're meeting for something to eat, and then one of them drops this kind of bombshell, for want of a better cliche, on the table. He says that a woman they used to know, who they knew when they were in their um, uh, early 20s, didn't really know at all, more admired from afar in this pub in town, by town I mean Dublin, um, he's met her. And not only that, he's left his wife and he's living with her. So that's as much as I had planned when I started the book. And it grew from there then. And it's about, I think, as much as anything else, it's about these two men reacquainting themselves with each other and reacquainting themselves with the value of what they had, the friendship that they had. And the woman, in a way, uh, it was, an, it was, it was a, a plot excuse to get them fighting, in a way. It's about memory as well. I don't know if you have siblings, but... Um, it's often interesting you sit around with siblings or close friends and somebody starts remembering something that happened years ago and it doesn't tally with what you recall happened years ago. It's often down to the choice of words, really, as much as anything else. So in a way, these two men share a past, but they're not sharing it. So but the whole idea, I think, was that 
the evening. They have one chance, one real chance. Either they're going to stay together as friends or they're going to part and never meet again, really. So uh, it's not world-shattering in a way, but on, a, on, a, on an intimate level it is, uh, that they're going to try and save their friendship. And as they do this, they go from pub to pub. And um, the, the alcohol loosens them, makes them stupid. The challenge, the creative challenge for me, and I really enjoyed it, was trying to capture the way they started to speak as they got drunk because they began to relive their youth in terms of how they speak. And one of them has, has been living in England so long that his, his, his Dublin accent is kind of disguised and he rediscovers it almost. It's almost a decision he makes to start dropping the G's at the end of words and start cutting multisyllabic words into one syllable and one syllable words into multisyllables. And he, uh, I tried to capture that on paper and uh, as they get drunk as well. But it's about, as much as anything else, you know, the word love, it's such a vague word because it covers everything we like, really. Oh, I love that. I love that. I love you. I love, you know. And in this case, I think more than anything else, it's the love between the two men, really, you know, uh, and trying to refine that because I think um, they're 60-odd at this stage. Uh, they're not looking forward in any sense, really. They're looking backwards. And this friendship will make looking forward that bit more palatable and uh, joyful. It's funny because when you start, the title love is like a question for the reader. You're trying to figure out why, how is this about love, right? And by yeah. the end, not giving anything away, by the end, you're like, oh, okay. Yeah. Now it's an affirmation. And it's such a, you take this journey with them. And as a reader, you have your own journey. Uh, yes, yeah, I mean, about their, their love for the women in their lives as well, their, their wives and other women, their, their children, children and the children who are no longer children, and that's such a tricky one. And then also, I think in the case of the narrator, it's as if he can possibly love himself, because I think mm -hmm. there's a lot of self-hatred and loathing in, in him. He's kind of, he fundamentally doesn't seem to like himself, I think, you know, and by the end of the book, he's very hard on himself, I think. But by the end of the book, perhaps there's a glimpse that he'll just let himself go a bit, you know, allow himself just to breathe and to enjoy. So there's, I think the term love, it wasn't like a lot of things I do. I, 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 titles come quite late. So I think I was well into this novel and the document on my laptop just said novel, you know. And uh, after a while, then the, the word love, because it does appear quite a lot in the book. I just thought, yeah, that, that because it's intriguing, you know, as well. That they, I don't think I think it's reasonable to say as well that you don't expect a, a book called Love to be written by a kind of a middle-aged Irish man. So it seemed to work in that sense as well, because I'd have been if I if I was hit on the head and I woke up two years later, I'd be did I write that? <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting because as it starts out they're kind of reliving this what, what many of us often think of as a golden time in our lives right when you had no responsibilities money in your pocket everything was new and you were just sort of on the precipice right yeah um and yet it's weird to rehash those things because it's hard to sometimes admit maybe it wasn't as great maybe i don't you're trying i think you find you spend your whole life trying to make sense of those years maybe in a way, or figuring out the legacy of them, which you yeah, hear perhaps, them doing? Perhaps, because there are consequences that we carry with us for the rest of our lives. 
Um, yeah, I suppose in a way it's pointless, but it, 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 uh, in a way... You can't help it. You know what, another thing, another aspect of it here, I, I, I remember when the first time I went to America, what I was struck by was how many people move. Yeah. A few oh, people, yeah. say, I'd meet in New York or San Francisco or anywhere, came from there. That they'd moved and you'd ask, where are you from? And it's a question I'm reluctant to ask anybody these days, but if you, you know, and you'd sit back then for a quarter of an hour till they itemized all the places they had lived or they'd gone to college and then they'd gone there and there. Whereas here in Ireland, in Dublin, if you come from Dublin, unless you emigrate, by and large you stay there. You know, the colleges are here. One third of the population lives here. So I live four miles away from where I grew up, you know, and I've never lived more than five miles away from where I grew up, unless I was living outside Ireland. And that's another aspect of it, living on a small island, that you, uh, you're surrounded by your past all the time. I meet it all the time, all the time, just down to the end of the road, and I'm confronting something that I was looking at when I was five. So you're, you're carrying these um, images and these echoes and ghosts with you all the time, and it's trying to... Uh, accommodate that but on, a, <coughs> on a personal level and I think I hope it comes into the book as well there isn't one tiny piece of me that would like to be 21 or 22 <laughs> that we can agree on <laughs> we can all agree on right the only thing I'd like from a 21 year old is his bladder <laughs> <laughs> yeah. other than that he's welcome to everything else but, yeah. So, in a way, I'm quite content being in the age that I am. And, you know, mortality, of course, becomes a real thing as people around you drop off. But once you accept that that's part of life, I mean, and you're reasonably healthy, I'm quite content being what I am. So it's not a yearning for the past. But then, having said that, there is that aspect of it. There must be that aspect of it, in a way. The, 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 the plot made itself apparent to me years before... I started the book. I was at an event, the closing down of a school, a high school I used to teach in. And it was an open day, you know, a Friday evening. Anybody who was involved in the school who'd attended it or thought in it was invited just to go and wander and have one last look. And, you know, the great thing about schools is that, that long corridor. I suppose they're the same all over the world, a long yeah. corridor. And my classroom, the classroom I used to teach in was at the end of a corridor. And I kept seeing these people coming at me. Some of them were immediately recognizable, people I hadn't seen in years and years, people I used to teach in the early 80s, you know, who wouldn't be all that much younger than myself, you know, because I was 21 when I started and I was teaching 17-year-olds. And these groups of, you know, middle-aged women were coming, and I recognized who they used to be as, you know, yeah, girls. Young ones. Yeah. And then from a distance, I saw a young woman who I would have thought, I think she left school at the age of 17, 18, in 1982. But I could see her in the distance. She'd come in and she looked from that distance. She looked, I knew who it was. And I said, God, she hasn't changed a bit. Yeah. And then as she got nearer, it was like the age was added. It was like a special effect that she went from being whatever age she was, say 17 when she left school, to being maybe 54 or 5 by the time we were face to face. Yeah. She's still the same person. And it was quite comical in a way. Yeah. Comical and unsettling. But uh, I thought that would be a brilliant notion for a story. 
But I put it behind me here for a good six, seven years, I think maybe longer before I decided I'd do anything with it. And that, as you know, is really the start of the story because that woman that walks into the, down the corridor is a, a woman that these two characters knew. Uh, or really, they, they knew her to see when she was a young woman. That's interesting you say that because um, uh, something you also referred to earlier about um, this woman is sort of the catalyst for the conversation that they start that night. But we they don't know much about her, we find out, and we don't ever really learn all that much about her either. And uh, that's by design, I'm sure. Yeah, it's very deliberate, very deliberate. I threw away a lot of stuff that was edging me towards making her, if you like. Uh, there are five characters, central characters in the story. There are the two men and there are three women. And the two other women, their wives, are very vivid, I think. Very vivid, yes. very real. Yes, so that would be Faye and Trish, right? Yeah, yeah, very vivid, very real. And I like, like I actually could imagine what they even looked like. Yeah. You know, without yeah. even a description of them, just yeah. because their personalities are so on the page. Yeah, I don't, I don't spend much time just physically describing people. I've never been drawn to that. But I, at the same time, I do find that they're, that they're both solid beings. They're physical beings. They're, you know, they're women. But very deliberately, I, I kind of thought when I was writing, going through it, maybe the second and the third drafts, I was wondering, is there a possibility that this woman doesn't exist at all? That she's yeah. somehow a fantasy of, you know, an, an, an early fantasy. Because you can't grasp her. Yeah, no. And, they, and that was one of the things about her when uh, she was a young woman that they didn't, and I don't mean this in any coarse way, they didn't grasp her then either. Right. And I don't mean in a coarse way, but they never got right. close to her, so to speak. She, right. was, she was always sort of represented something else. A different world, a different social zone as well, you know. But uh, I wondered, like, does this woman exist? And I thought, well, I'm open. I'll leave it at that. I, I'm quite content with that. You know, I don't. But then at the end, I don't know, without giving too much away, he does suggest that they go back to his house to meet her. So that's yeah. pretty daring if she doesn't yeah. exist. <laughs> Coming up in a moment, we'll continue to hear from Roddy Doyle about his latest book, and we'll hear about the relatively new circumstances in his native land that drove him to write the screenplay for his most recent movie, Rosie. When I was a child, when I was in school, I never encountered anybody in uh, elementary school or high school who was homeless. Now, uh, up until before the, the, the pandemic, if I was a child or if I was a teenager and if I was going to the same schools in the same area of Dublin, I would know. But... I suppose you don't associate it with Ireland and you wouldn't have seen it 20 years ago, 10 years ago even. That and some insight on the writing methods and style of Roddy Doyle when talking with authors continues from ATC Media. Educate Today offers an ever-growing library of the highest quality video resources, curriculum materials, and interactive programs, all of which are designed to challenge thinking, inspire creativity, and empower learning of students, educators, parents, and lifelong learners. And you can find out more about all these programs by going online to educate.today. That's educate.today. Throughout the course of the night, you talked about your, your dialogue has always been your medium, right? And, and, um, and so, so much of the story, obviously, most of it is told, told through the dialogue. But yeah. through that dialogue, 
it's we feel them i would say a dance but in a way it's like a football match right you come together you go apart you yeah it gets combative at times it gets tender at times conciliatory i mean so much happens in in those words and choices of words and it's almost like there were times i had to like put it down a bit because it was like it's emotional and kind of there's a lot going on yes there is and in a way, it's a, it's a somewhat unusual conversation in that they do reveal themselves in a way that normally they wouldn't. Right. And, and then their internal dialogue, too. Yes. Yeah, I think I'd written a little bit when I decided, no, I want one of, the, one of them to narrate this. I want one of them to be the storyteller. Not just a witness either in the sense he's not looking at something that's happening. That's there as well, but he's living it. And he's actually an agent in all this as well, you know? I think there's no better way, you know, you get two men talking. I mean, I remember it's, it's because they're that, those men of a generation to get to the point, to get to that point where they, it's a novel. I'd like to think that if it was younger men, it might be a short story. <laughs> they wouldn't be as guarded, I hope. <laughs> <laughs> that they, you know, would be educated and, you know, that they not educated in a formal way, but that by by example or whatever, that they would not be as guarded and as monosyllabic as many Irish men were trained to be. That um, if I was a 30-year-old writer writing about two men who meet after 10 years, maybe, that it would be a short story because there wouldn't be a novel in it because they get to the point way quicker. Whereas I actually am quite content being in the novel. If you like, if I was to be the subject, I'd rather be in the novel than the short story. So I'm not envying the 30-year-old man. But right. I don't know if um, you've seen Normal People. Oh, gosh. I want. I could talk to you for an hour about that, right? Yeah. Yeah, I'd, I'd love to know your novel. thoughts on that. Yeah. I read the novel when it came out, and I thought it was wonderful. I loved the plainness yeah. of the language. But what struck me watching the very first episode, or maybe the second episode of Normal People, when... They started having sex for the first time. How, although it was kind of intimate and hesitant, but how aware he was and how um, tender he was at the same time. And, you know, and I just thought there was an aspect to his education that was utterly absent when I was his age. Mm. And it, it wasn't envy as such, but I found it very moving. That somehow or other, because he went to a school, a mixed school with boys and girls, which was actually in many ways a, quite a savage place, a uh, nasty kind of place in many ways. But that he had been reared, not just by his mother, who was a wonderful character, but also by the place he was now living in, to have a bit more consideration for the person he was with. And it struck me that that was such a hopeful image for somebody of my age, really, to see a young Irish man behaving in that way. Yeah, it was beautiful, really, right? Mm -hmm. um, and it was uh, uh, you, it was amazing to me sometimes when I would see the length of an episode and realize how much was packed in and it yeah. never felt that way, right? Because so yeah. much was the nuance of his yeah. internal struggle and personality yeah. and the and yeah, it was it was yeah. it was like I mean it was a masterpiece I felt like in that sense. Of yes, what it I thought so. Yeah, yeah, I'd be very, uh, very churlish to start pointing out little flaws because everything has flaws. It was just brilliantly done, really, really brilliantly yeah. done. Yeah. What I thought, what I liked about it, and you're talking about my dialogue earlier. I mean, he's so on the verge of being inarticulate, but you can tell he's an intelligent young lad. But he's on the verge of being inarticulate because every word has to count in a way. And I thought it was brilliantly done in that way as well because you know. There's so many dot, dot, dot sentences he speaks that he doesn't finish. 
but it's because of his use of language is so precise, I think, that at times he just says nothing. And in the, in the world of Trinity College, where he's surrounded by these gas bags who never shut up and talk nonsense. And have that confidence of wealth that you get. Oh, from, absolutely. I think that right, was from feeling important, right, from a young age. He comes from that typical, like what I would have felt I was raised in and probably yourself too, where it was like, watch yourself you know, uh, don't be too happy with yourself, right? He comes from that, and now he's in this world of like, I'm awesome. Uh, yeah. it's, it's such a straight, right? I mean, that's a whole discussion on its own. Yes. Uh, right? Yeah. Of, it's just, yeah. I thought it was just brilliantly achieved. And I think it goes capture what I meant by, you know, now granted, he's a, that's a novel, but it's not a novel about two men coming together to talk. Um, and, you know, as we know from normal people, one of his friends commits suicide. So it's not a barrel of laughs by any means. But I just thought at that moment, I thought if I could encapsulate in a piece of fiction or, you know, either in the novel or on the, on the screen, what's the difference between then and now? I'd point at that and say, that's now. That's the difference. Yeah, The rules something have changed. Right. Something to celebrate, I think. Right. And I think the interesting thing, too, is, as you said, too, what's illustrated in Love and what was illustrated tro, through Connell's character, Normal People, is there's no uh, map for how to navigate that. Even Connell in, in Normal People, who's close with his mother, you still can't articulate those things. You go through it very much alone, in a way, and you get that same sense from your characters, too, in Love. Like, at the end of the day, like, there's not really... There are, there's not really anyone you can confide in that... No, that there isn't a manual, really, you know. Davy also, his mother dies when he's very young, so he grows up with a, quite a silent father. A nice man, fundamentally. Not a brute right. by any means, but... Right. A gentleman, uh, right. A gentleman, and I think Davy says too gentle. He'd like, to, he'd like if he'd shouted at him, or, you know, when he was playing his music very loud, to shout at him to turn it down. He'd have liked that, because that's what he got in other houses. But he didn't get that. It's hard to fault the father because he was just trying to do the best he could. He was probably carrying this awful grief as well, you know, to be robbed of the woman he loved and his future and their future at such a young age. And to be, in a way, given his generation stuck with this child, and he probably didn't know what to do with him. So he left him out money to fend for himself and, but, and, and occasionally asked him how he was getting on. But there was no example for him then, really, you know, his... Memory soup isn't full of moments when his parents looked at each other, you know. Right. And you see when he was at a crossroads as to who to choose to spend his life with, you see why he chose Faye, right? It was a... Oh, certainly to fill in that enormous vacuum. Right. right. Yeah, right. I had great fun inventing her. <laughs> One of the things that really comes across in the dialogue, which you've touched on and some of the other things we've talked about too, is the concept of men spending their entire life trying to figure out women. <laughs> yes. If there's one theme that runs through this, it's how much that is always a part. And of course, not to say that for every man, right? Not, but, but for heterosexual men, that is the never ending quest in question is trying to figure out what the heck is she thinking? What are any of them thinking? Yeah. What did they mean? What do I, <laughs> and that yeah. is, that's a theme throughout, right? Yeah. The fascination, the confusion, the... Frustration, the absolute... <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. What, what else can I say? Well, well spotted. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I get the impression that you didn't really know much more by the end of it either, but at least you get to exercise no, it a bit. <laughs> no, if I had a white flag, I'd cheerfully wave it. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> the next thing I'd love to talk to you about is the movie Rosie, which you wrote, and uh, it was last year, I understand. Uh, and that is about the homeless crisis for working families in Dublin and, and other big cities. And I didn't realize until uh, looking up more about it afterwards, I, I assumed that that was a novel you turned into a movie, not realizing that uh, that was a story that, that took shape completely as a, as a screenplay. Yeah. Um, and uh, it, it's, it's, I mean, it's a, a, it's a haunt. Uh, the only word I can say is haunting because there's no, res it, it's, it's such a difficult yeah. subject matter. Yeah, the story was actually quite easy in a sense because it was a straight line. What I, I, I was listening, half listening, as we often do to the news one morning, making me coffee. Uh, maybe four years ago would be now, perhaps maybe five years ago. And it was a woman describing her day before where she'd spent most of the day trying to find somewhere to spend the night. Having dropped her kids, she'd woke, woken up in a hotel room put the kids into the car, dropped the kids who went to school, two or three different schools. The hotel was far from where they used to live, so the schools were far from where they were to drop them off. And then basically she spent the rest of the day trying to find another hotel room or anywhere, bed and breakfast, anywhere that where she could spend the night. And I was listening to her. She was very clear, very precise, and very quite calm in a way that I thought quite extraordinary. But what really gave me pause for thought and really kind of slapped me across the head was she said, my partner couldn't help me because he was at work. Right, it's about the housing crisis, right, and, and what working families... Or the rents, you know, and they were doing it, you like, they were fulfilling that social contract in that old-fashioned way. He was going to work. She was looking after the kids, mammy, daddy, under the one roof, except there's no roof. And I thought, well, there's the story. There's a story. I mean, I find the whole homeless crisis here in this kind of liberal democracy outrageous. And I, you know, I can say that for the rest of my life and nobody would listen because I'm just somebody saying it. But one thing I have, a skill I have is writing. And I just thought, well, I thought immediately it has to be a screen thing. It's not a novel. And I got working on the plan really, really quickly, and I had it done in a couple of days. One thing I just want to ask you, too, to make sure I'm explaining for, for viewers who aren't as familiar with the housing crisis and the rental crisis there. Um, before the pandemic, give us a sense of how bad that crisis was. I know it's hard to know now what it will be like after this new normal. But uh, can you give us a sense, too, of just how... Uh, debilitating that housing and rental crisis uh, ha has been in, in, in Ireland and in Dublin and the big cities, because it's affecting the other big cities there too. When I was a child, when I was in school, I never encountered anybody in uh, elementary school or high school who was homeless. Now, uh, up until before the, the, the pandemic, if I, had, if I was a child or if I was a teenager and if I was going to the same schools in the same area of Dublin, I would know people who are homeless, temporarily homeless, or in a sense, permanently homeless, so to speak. People who were coming from a different direction, from a different guest house or bed and breakfast or hotel, whose parents were getting them to school. Coming, They were coming in late. They were coming in without their homework done. They were coming in gray-faced and undernourished, and they would be visible and there. Uh, because, you know, I live in a small country, but at one point, there were, you know, there were 10,000 homeless children, officially. 10,000 homeless children, you know, with mothers and fathers or whatever, both or one or other. 
But in a huge country, that's just a statistic. In a small country, that's 10,000 people because we're, we're all in a way touched by it. And the family situation, it was a bit invisible because, you know, you see homeless individuals sleeping on the streets. And that's another thing that visitors to Dublin would be. Now, it's not just a uniquely Dublin thing because you also see it elsewhere. But uh, I suppose you don't associate it with Ireland and you wouldn't have seen it 20 years ago, 10 years ago even, because everybody had somewhere to stay. But you would wander around Dublin and, you you know, it was almost like sometimes maybe 11 p.m. and you'd be walking down Grafton Street, one of the main drags of Dublin. And it's almost like bedtime for the homeless because they're, you know, bedding down in any storefront they can find. And um, you can't brush that away. You know, it was there. It was visible. It was just shaming. So that's what he urged to write. The, when I heard that woman on the radio, as I said, I just thought, well, there's the story. That's the story, her quest to find a room uh, for her children, for herself and her children, just for one night. Not even a home, but just somewhere to stay. And uh, that's when, when economics goes mad, this is what happens. Yeah. Well, thank, thank you, Roddy Doyle, so much for spending time with us. It's, uh, I loved the book. Um, it's thank been you. such a pleasure to talk with you. Thanks a lot. Uh, yeah, and hopefully next time we'll get to see you in person here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's a there's a thought. That's screenwriter and Booker Prize winning author Roddy Doyle on not just his movies, but his recent book, Love, a novel, by publisher Penguin Random House, when we spoke with him in June of 2020. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Talking with Authors. Remember, you can watch most of the episodes of this program by going online to hecmedia.org. Also, be sure to follow us on social media. Just search for Talking With Authors on all social media platforms. And if you haven't done so yet, please rate and review this program wherever you get your podcasts. The host and producer of the video version of this program was Brenda Madden. Video editing was by Carrie Marks. Graphics by Greg Kopp. Supervising producer was Julie Winkle. Production support by Christina Chastain and Jane Ballou. HEC Media Executive Director is Dennis Riggs. The Talking With Authors podcast executive producer is Christina Chastain. Podcast audio editing by Ben Smith. And I'm Rod Milam, your podcast producer and host. Again, we thank you for joining us. We'll see you next time. This is HEC Media. You wake up. You get dressed. You prepare for a day of challenging and inspiring young minds. But maybe all you get is frustration and anxiety. You are a teacher. In the Classroom Matters podcast, we discuss the good, the bad, and the ugly of education. We talk to people such as Kim Bearden, co-founder of the Ron Clark Academy, Ken Williams, creator of Unfold the Soul, Teacher of the Year Beth Davey, and so many more insightful educators. Because your voice matters, your experience matters, your classroom matters. Classroom Matters with Christy Houle, a new podcast from Educate.today. Subscribe and download now.